Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we welcome in the Sabbath. who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. And now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz We give thanks to God for bread Our voices rise in song together As our joyful prayer is said Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wives that you have given to us. We thank you for giving us wives of Proverbs, Lord. Father, I pray that you would pour out a special blessing upon my wife this Sabbath day. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her in all the things that she does here in our household. As she takes care of the children, as she teaches them and educates them, as she takes care of our home, I pray, Lord, that she knows how valuable she is and how her worth is far above jewels. I thank you for the wonderful blessing that she is to me, to our children, to our household, and I pray you pour us out a special blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. And now we will bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now we bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. 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 Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.
Bahu eternai ham vorach, Baruch adonai ham vorach le'olam vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha ba'elim adonai. Michamocha nedar ba'chodesh. No rotechilot osefele osefele. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you. Amen. Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat l'adrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael othi le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et ha'shamayim v'et ha'aretz v'yom ha'shavi shavat v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha, uf'kol nashicha, uf'chol meodecha. 
Veheyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavcha. Vashinan tam lavanecha, vadepardabam beshiftacha, beyetacha, uvlatacha, vederech ushakbika, ufkumika. Ukershatam la ota yadecha, vaheyu la totavolt binanecha, uchetavtama mazuzo betecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
mighty one of Jacob and yet you're so humble that you can come and reveal yourself and show such compassion to us your people thank you Father the next song I want to sing is one of my favorite songs it's Psalm 148 and
Turn in your Bibles to the book of Bamitbar, the book of Numbers, to chapter 4. Hold your finger there at verse 21. And as you are doing that, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher barkabanu mikol ha'amim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha-amein Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion for this week is entitled Naso. Uh, which comes from the uh, book of Numbers here, at, starting at verse 22, uh, here where it says, Take a census of the sons of Gershon. And that word take means uh, to elevate or to lift up. And so take a census is the name of our portion, Naso. Um, it's interesting that we always like to talk about the name of the Torah portion and what the word is. And we're talking about elevating a census. And one of the things we're going to start by talking about here uh, at this uh, portion for this week is we're going to talk about the Levites and how they were to carry the tabernacle when they were to go and how they were to lift up and go and take the tabernacle when the children of Israel journeyed in the wilderness. Um, with a recap from last week, we took a census of the sons of Israel that were able to go to war, age 20 and up. And we are also taking a census of the Levites. Even though they were numbered differently and separately, um, in our portion here begins a specific count of the Levites that were able to service the tabernacle. And that was age 30 to 50. That was the age of a priest for them to do the service of the tabernacle. At the end of our portion last week, we was talking about Kohath and what their responsibilities were. And our portion for this week picks up talking about the Gershonites, one of the other families of Levi, what their responsibilities were to the tabernacle, and also the sons of Merari, the third son of Levi, and what their responsibilities were. This is a very big portion. In fact, it's considered the largest Torah portion in the cycle. And that's thanks mostly due to Numbers chapter 7, which is the longest chapter in the Torah cycle. And so there's a lot of content to get to. And so I hope that I can cover that just to give um, a quick overview of what this first part of our Torah portion is. The sons of Gershon. Their responsibilities to the tabernacle were to carry the, the uh, curtains of the tabernacle, the various coverings, the textiles, and then also the sons of Merari were to carry all the boards, the planks, the pillars of the tabernacle. And as I mentioned before, Kohath, their responsibility was to carry the most beautiful furnishings of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread. Um, just to kind of cap all of that off, in our portion here in Numbers chapter 7, it talks about how the Levites 
Levites were given oxen and carts to carry those articles. Each of those things, whenever they went to travel, there was a, was a great deal to move all of the elements of the tabernacle. And so the Levites were given carts and oxen to carry those things. But one thing I wanted to note, and I mentioned this last week, that the responsibilities of Kohath, which, which is where Korah comes. And so I feel like as we're beginning the book of Numbers, we're almost countdown, we're having a countdown to the rebellion. We're, we're seeing the seeds of the rebellion of Korah coming here because we have little notes of that. And I specifically want to note in Numbers chapter 7, Kohath did not receive any carts. They didn't receive any oxen. Everything that they had to carry, they had to carry upon their shoulders. And so, once again, we have just little hints of the complaints that will come later. The um, rebellion of Korah, what he will say is that he had to carry items without all of these the benefits of a cart, such as the other sons of Levi. And so there's sort of this, uh, we're starting to see more and more about the responsibilities of the Levites and how they tended to the tabernacle. We have a census of the Levites given. Once again, we have a series of numbers that are given in the scripture that I believe that have greater meaning and greater purpose that a deeper study, uh, I'd be excited to see what uh, fruits that would bear with a deeper study. We have the sons of Kohath, which number to 2,750. The sons of Gershon number to 2,630. We have the sons of Merari numbering out to 3,200. And then the total number of Levites that serviced the tabernacle in the wilderness was 8,580. If those numbers Numbers have significance to other areas of Scripture. It would be amazing to see um, the wisdom of the Lord in the connection of those numbers to other parts of Scripture. Now, our portion continues here, now in Numbers chapter 5, and this is where we start getting into a few more uh, commandments and different procedures that were done to make restitution if one was to sin. So here in Numbers chapter 5, our portion continues on, talking about ceremonially unclean people, people who were lepers, so people who had a discharge. They were to be kept outside of the camp. And then we also, the passage continues where if someone is a brother in the tribes of Israel, wrongs somebody else, if they trespass against another, that they are to make restitution and that they are to not only repay what they trespassed against, but to repay one-fifth as well, 20% on top of that. And then we have the passage talking about the concerning unfaithful wives. And what it is, is if a husband became jealous of his wife, there was a very elaborate procedure as to bear her whether she was guilty or whether she was innocent in her unfaithfulness. What we have going on in this entire passage is this, is we're talking about the restitution of sin, and it builds on itself. First, we are talking about sins that are very obvious. If someone has a uh, discharge or they're leprous, it's obvious, it's physically obvious that somebody is sinned or is unclean, and that restitution is made by them staying outside of the camp. Then we have other sins that are maybe not as obvious, but somewhat where we have someone trespasses against another person. If they wrong somebody financially or they were to take care of an item and it's to get damaged, how do we make restitution there? And then we have the sins that are more secretive. 
such as adultery, where we have this sin that could, is possible that if a wife is unfaithful to her husband, this is a sin that would have taken place in private. What our passage here in Numbers and for our portion for this week is kind of covering all the sort of gamut of the types of sins and the restitution that would need to be made. Now, this procedure about the law of jealousy and that this was a very elaborate procedure where a husband could bring his wife. He is jealous. He thinks he, there's not a witness against her that she was unfaithful, but his jealousy, the spirit of jealousy has come upon him and he wishes to test whether that she is guilty of unfaithfulness. And this is an elaborate procedure to where a man would bring his wife, the priest was to look over her, and then was to take dust from the tabernacle floor, mix it in water, put it in a basin, she was to drink it, and that the curse was to fall upon her. Now, when we think about this in our modern Midwest culture, rather than the ancient Near East, this sounds like a very interesting procedure. This is something that you wouldn't imagine actually happening, actually taking place. But what it is, is this was an act that was that was actually common in the Torah service and in the tabernacle that a spirit, the, the husband could have the spirit of jealousy and bring her in. And the consequence of her, if she was guilty after she drank these bitter waters, that it says in our scripture, it says that her belly will swell and her thigh will waste away. Well, that's actually a phrase that describes she would become barren. Now, in the ancient times, for a woman to become barren, that would have been a great punishment. That would have been pretty much the most horrible thing that could happen to a young lady because much of her life and everything, the, the uh, value of a wife was her ability to bear children. This would have been a great punishment. What this is done, this is not about man's control over his wife. Many people might think that it's all that that a man and a husband can, is just complete control over his wife and that this is uh, just shows more and more the power of the man over his wife. That's not the purpose of what's being commanded here. What's being commanded here is talking about the restitution to be made between a husband and a wife. This was a joyous time in which that if the spirit of jealousy came upon the man before they would ever get to this point, before the woman would be brought before the priest, she would typically confess or that would repent if this was the case. If she did not, she was not guilty, then she would go through this procedure it would be proven that she wasn't guilty and restitution would be made. That was the point of this commandment. Now, there's a lot of other things going on here in the scripture that this is not just about a woman coming before the priest and her drinking bitter waters and becoming barren or being proved innocent. What's going on here is every time we talk about adultery in the scripture, there is a connection to spiritual idolatry, especially when it comes to Israel's faithfulness to her husband, God, Yeshua, the Messiah, that we have a comparison where the every time you see something about a husband and a wife, if you go into any deeper study, you can just think of the husband as God and think of the wife as Israel. This is the connection that's made now. So what's going on here? Well, Israel, through the course of its history and its time, has not been faithful to the God of Israel. They have gone after other gods. They have committed spiritual adultery, idolatry with other gods. And God himself says he is a jealous God. That comes from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 5. So he is a jealous God and that he, at some point in time, will call in his bride to say, have you been faithful to me? Now, like I said before, the goal of this whole procedure is to cause Israel to repent. 
cause Israel to repent of the sins that it has made and the adultery that it has committed. It says here that in the process, when the priest explains that if you drink this water, there's a curse that will be upon you. It says, then the woman shall say, amen, so be it. Amen. So whenever we say amen to something, when we pray and when we, uh, when we um, ask for something to take place, and we say amen, amen is actually the root word of imunah, which is faith. And so it's like, so you have, when you say amen, you have the faith that it will be. We're warned here in this passage to be careful what you say amen to. Because if you want to stand and say before the Lord and to give an account that you have been faithful and that you have uh, remained faithful to your husband, your spiritual husband, God, Israel, Israel has been faithful then you need to be certain that you have um, that when you say amen to something that you are submitting to that authority that you are submitting to the punishment that might may come but the thing that you should do before you get to that point before judgment passes you should repent of the sins that you have made so we have this connection here so as we might look at this passage and say this is an archaic practice that wouldn't wouldn't be applicable in today's society what it is is there is a spiritual connection that is going on here between Israel remaining faithful to the God of Israel many have always said made a comparison to this that the dust of the tabernacle there's a connection to Yeshua here where the story from John chapter 8 where Yeshua was brought an adulterous woman and they said they brought her in and she was caught in the act of adultery and that then she would what what should we do with her according to the law what what do you say well here's a difference here that always needs to be pointed out this procedure about the uh, bitter waters and the dust of the tabernacle this was for if a woman was not caught in the act if someone's caught in the act of unfaithfulness or uh, to to file themselves this is covered in Deuteronomy chapter 17, where it talks about if there's more than one witness, you're to stone that person. And then it says the witnesses are to be the first to throw the, the first stones. And so this so that passage connects more with Deuteronomy chapter 17 because she was caught in the act. Now, in the story from the gospel is the witnesses all left because he said, let those without sin cast the first stone. They walked away. There were no longer any witnesses to cast the first stone. But the thing that always connects it back is that's interesting is that Yeshua bent down and he was writing in the dust of the floor of the tabernacle. And that gives us a hint back to this passage where it's like, okay, if you're bringing in an unfaithful person or an unfaithful wife, this was the proper procedure of how to do things. But as you know, there were witnesses and they said, and what we believe to be the case was the witnesses who brought her in, that they too have committed the same sin that they were accusing the woman of. So there's an interesting connection, obviously, to other parts of scripture here. Our passage, our Torah portion continues now into Numbers chapter 6, where we now talk about another interesting law, and that is the law of the Nazarite. That is when someone would take a Nazarite vow. And what's interesting about this as well, when you read it very at the beginning, that it says a man or a woman may take a Nazarite vow, a vow to God. Now, what is really going on here? They would take a vow and they would commit a certain thing to the Lord to consecrate themselves to the Lord. And there was a couple of things that they were to abstain from. 
They had to abstain from wine, strong drink of any kind, even to the, so, to the point that they couldn't partake anything with grape skin, grape seeds, anything, raisins, any other fermented beverage. It was almost like a very specific prohibition to anything that is wine or strong drink. They also could not let any razor come upon their head. They were to grow their hair if they were to perform this vow. And also it was very implicit that they do not come in contact with anything dead. A dead body, even if it's a near of kin to them, like a father or a mother. This was a way that somebody, a common person, could consecrate themselves to God. In the same fashion, in a similar way, not saying it's the same, but in a similar way, that the high priest was consecrated to God. The same prohibitions are, the types of prohibitions are there, not in the exact same fashion. Because the priests were not able to drink wine or strong drink during the service of the tabernacle. They were also to not harm the corner, the edges of their beard or harm their hair in the way that the heathens did when mourning for the dead. So there's a similarity there as well. And also they were not to come in contact with any dead thing to be unclean, to defile themselves. And so this was a way, and this is a commandment, how the common man could consecrate themselves before the Lord for a set period of time. And then there was an elaborate set of sacrifices that when they came back to the tabernacle to complete their vow, they would shave their hair, the hair would become a part of the sacrifices, and there was a number of animals that were used to complete the Nazarite vow. This was a very elaborate procedure. Now the whole point of this was for a man or woman to become closer and consecrated to God. We're going to talk about in the Haftor portion uh, about Samson, who was a Nazarite, who didn't, was not from birth, was declared by God to be a Nazarite, that his, no harm was to come to his hair in the process. And my father's going to talk about in the Haftor portion about the story of Samson. We also have a connection to the New Testament where Paul did this same thing. In Acts chapter 21, when Paul came into Jerusalem and there was rumors that Paul was teaching against the Torah and teaching against uh, following the customs and, and commandments of Moses, James came up to Paul, and this happened right before he was arrested, and said, there's people thinking you're teaching against the Torah, so this is what you should do. There were four men who were coming that were completing a Nazarite vow. And he said to Paul, go with them, go to the tabernacle and complete the Nazarite vow with them, even to pay for the sacrifices that were to take place. This was an amazing thing, an act that Paul did to prove his faithfulness to the commandments of the Torah. Because these sacrifices, it was it said in ancient writings that the amount of sacrifices that were done to complete the Nazarite vow, that it was almost a yearly wage to pay for these sacrifices. So that this would have been a great amount of uh, financial uh, benefit that Paul gave to these men to complete this Nazarite vow. When he was arrested, his hair had been shaved because he too finished the cleansing of the Nazarite vow. And this was a proof of Paul's faithfulness to the Torah. We don't really think about that when we read that story. When you see Paul on trial, you don't picture him as to have his hair shaved and that he had completed this. But there's a connection here to the New Testament the, about this Nazarite vow and what its purpose was. Also, someone else who was a Nazarite at times was uh, Samuel, the prophet, and that there was there's more things going on. And so as a passage of scripture about a law that 
in our modern day is kind of done away with. No, you don't see any example of people following any Nazarite vows to truly complete it. We would need the Torah service and we'd need the temple and the altar service to truly complete it according to Torah. But again, it's something that has actual great importance to men of faith to consecrate themselves to our God, which is something we should always try to take application to. For those of us who profess a faith in God, we want to set ourselves apart. We want to be a called out assembly, a chosen people that separate ourselves from the rest of the world. And we should always look for ways to commit to our God even more. If we had a temple, if we had an altar service, I believe there would be a great number of people who would do this more because of the zeal to be closer to God, to consecrate themselves. Even though I'm a common man, even though I'm not one of the Levites who were set apart for the, for the service of God in the tabernacle and to be intercessors between the people and, um, and God, still others have the zeal to be closer to God. And this was a means even a man or a woman could do this to bring themselves closer to the almighty creator of heaven and earth. What a wonderful thing that would be. Our passage for this week also includes the instruction for the priestly blessing, which is Numbers chapter 6, starting at verse 22. Let me read here. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace so that I may put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. Now, anyone who's been messianic for five minutes or more has probably heard this blessing that we do in congregations and a great number of times that we pour out a blessing upon the children of Israel. Traditionally, this was obviously done by the priesthood, but as time has gone on through the practice of Judaism, that they have said that anyone, if there's no Levite present, this blessing can still be put on the children of Israel. In fact, it falls to a member of the tribe of Judah if there's no Levite present, and that's traditionally in, within Judaism. Now, the wonderful thing about this blessing is this, is that the way that it's listed is it's very personal. God is speaking directly to you and needs to be made personally to an individual. Even if the blessing is given to a corporate environment, that one is to retain it as if it's personally said. When it says you in the blessing, you are to receive that blessing personally. And the Lord's name is uttered three times in this blessing, which I believe there's significance to that. You are mentioned six times in the blessing that directly saying the Lord bless you and keep you be make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. You're mentioned six times and there's significance to those numbers and the power that this blessing contained. The first clause of the blessing is fantastic because it says the Lord bless you. And everybody wants the blessing. Everybody wants to be blessed, wants to receive the blessing, whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, whether it's spiritual. We want to be filled with things that are good. But then once we get those things, we have a tendency to squander those away. We have a tendency to not retain those wonderful blessings that are given to us sometimes. If we ever receive financial blessing, sometimes that financial blessing doesn't stay. But the clause in the blessing contains the Lord bless you and keep you. That almost that God is blessing that you have the way to retain the blessings once they've been given to you. It's that one last little note that makes the receiving of the blessing from the Lord that much greater. 
The second clause, may he make his face to shine upon you. I've always heard it said that that is to smile as if God smiles upon you. When you see somebody and somebody, their face lights up and they smile when they see you, it causes a great deal of blessing and joy that not only for the person who sees you, that the joy comes to their life when they see you and that he may be gracious to you. So not only are you talking about somebody across the room, maybe a stranger, a stranger can look at you and smile. But that someone, but not only that person smiles, but they then give you grace, give you favor, do something for you, form a relationship with you. So each of these blessings are great on their own, but when combined together, they take on a, a greater meaning of the way this blessing is received. And when it says the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, that's really what it is for him to, his joy just comes to his life. Not almost not as a physical observation that he smiles, but that joy fills his life and his countenance, his face turns to you. Not just smiling when he thinks about you, but turns and faces you and then give you peace. Peace is what we all wish to receive. We don't want to be at war. We don't want to be at conflict. We want to be at peace. This blessing is wonderful, and it is for the children of Israel. Many people have staked claim to being a part of Israel. That people want to join in. So people want to be called. Why is it that we have in the world today that people so much want to be considered Jewish or love Israel or, or be a part of this group? Well, it's because this group has the blessing. We have the blessing of the Lord, and so you wish to be a part of that. And it says that I shall put my name upon the children of Israel. Now, the name of God, yod heh vav is listed three times in here. But one of the things that's very interesting that I've heard it said before is this, is that the people of, it, of God are called Jews. Now, we have this term in modern day, Jewish Judaism, that comes from Judah, from being the, the tribe of Judah. The interesting thing about the name Judah is that contained in the name Judah is the name of God. Yo, Judah is spelled Yehuda in the Hebrew, yod Hey vav dalet Hey. You remove the Dalet and you have yod Hey vav Hey. And so for when you identify with the Jewish people or you have received that name, that within that name is the name of God as a part of the way we have today, Jews or a part of Judaism. Kind of an interesting thing that God's name is upon his people in that way. Our last passage for this Torah portion, our last chapter, which I don't have much time left, happens to be the longest passage in all of Torah. Numbers chapter 7, which contains 89 verses. Now, it's kind of an interesting reason why. In this passage, I talked about briefly before at the start of our Torah portion that the Levites received oxen and carts to do their service. And then beginning in verse 10, it talks about the leaders, the 12 leaders that were called at the beginning of the book of Numbers, were to come before and make offerings to the altar and make offerings to the tabernacle after the dedication of the altar. So the timeline is a little bit off at times, but we just need to focus in on this took place after the tabernacle was built, established, and then the offerings are taking place. And for 12 days, one tribe each day came to the tabernacle and brought gifts before the Lord, sacrifices and gifts. And let me go ahead and read here at verse 12, starting off on the very first day, leading off with the tribe of Judah. It said, the one who offered on the first day was Nachshan, the son of Aminadab, of the tribe of Judah. His offering was one silver platter, the weight of which was 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering. 
One gold pan of ten shekels full of incense, one young bull, one ram, one male lamb in its first year as a burnt offering, one kid of the goats as a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. This was the offering of Nashan, the son of Aminadab. It says, then on the second day, Natanel, the son of Zuar, the leader of Issachar, presented an offering. His offering was one silver platter, the weight of 130 shekels, one silver bowl of 70 shekels, both of them full of flour mixed with oil. I don't need to go on because you start to get the sense. Every tribe brought the exact same offering. And it is listed for us in excruciating detail, in exacting detail, that every tribe brought this. Now, what's going on here exactly? Why, would it, so why, why wouldn't the scripture just say each tribe brought this offering and then it's 12 times that offering? Instead, we have the long, this long phrasing of every single tribe. Now, this goes back to what I said last week, that to be counted amongst the Lord, you wanted to have things to be equal rather than just listing who gave it first, who gave it second. But no, each tribe had a day that they were to bring this offering, that there was not any tribe that was exalted above another just because it may have been in an order, that everything was the same. Every tribe was counted equally. This is a, uh, an application we want to believe, that God is counting us and that I'm special, you're special, we're not, we're not, one is not being exalted above the other. The rabbis have a great amount of study done on this passage which is fascinating to study, and it's very interesting to do. And, and on one hand, it's fun to kind of look at. At the other hand, it depends on how that really ministers to you. What they say is this, is they say, each offering by each tribe had a different meaning because who it was coming from. To give you an example, they say that the two silver articles of the tribe of Judah, when they brought it, the two silver vessels represented the descendants of the tribes of Judah, the, the future Messiah figures, one being Solomon and one being the future Messiah that would be a son of Judah. But then another tribe that had, they would then say, well, the two articles represented something else. The tribe of Issachar was known for its Torah scholars throughout the history. And so they say the two articles represented not only the written law of Scripture, but the oral law that was carried by the sons of Issachar. So even though the same gift was given, they relate it differently. And they go into the gematria value of the various numbers. And the, when it says that the gold pan was 10 shekels, they talk about for Judah, that was the 10 generations from Perez to David. But for Issachar, that represented the Ten Commandments. And then when it came to the tribe of Zebulun, they say that there's ten Hebrew words in the blessing of the son of Zebulun from Genesis 49, that the ten represents something different to each tribe. And I could go on about how the, um, the sons of Simeon, all those uh, different things had to do with the dimensions of the tabernacle and the, with the service of the tabernacle. And so there's a great number of things that can be said and I don't have the time to go into all of them, of why all these different numbers and the different sacrifices meant something different to each tribe. So what can we really glean from this? What is, what is the, the purpose here of, of pointing that out? Well, the thing that I want to say is this, is that when someone gives a gift and another person gives the same gift, it is not the same. If you have a congregation and you have a family that comes and let's say they donate $100, put it in the pushka, they make a donation to the congregation, and another family comes and they donate $100. 
Was the hundred dollars the same from one person, from one family and the other family? No. We don't really know. One family might have been giving it because they were simply giving an offering, a one-time gift of $100. They're passing through, and then they won't give any more. Other people might be giving a monthly tithe for their, daily, for their earnings. And so what's the distinction here that we're talking about? Is the giver determines the value of the gift. That when somebody gives something and gives something to the Lord or does something for another person, that it's unique for each person. Even if it's the, the same, the heart is sometimes different for those that would be giving the gift to showing their love to a neighbor, showing their love to God to give a gift. And we have that example presented here when we have the tribes of Israel giving the exact same thing. However, it means something different. It means something to each person, to, be, to each individual. It has a greater value to the person rather than what somebody else might observe it to be. One might look at the, at the gift and they'll say, oh, well, isn't that person rich? They could have given more than that. Or didn't that tribe have more people? Why didn't they give more offerings? Because that tribe had a greater number of people. Again, this goes back to the first thing I said about last week's portion is that we are not to count ourselves to think that we are somehow greater than another. We continue to have to let the Lord determine our value. Let the Lord count you and let you be counted amongst the people and don't think that you're greater or less than another because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As we continue through the book of numbers for this year, we will see that more and more. We will see the mumbling, the grumbling, the rebellions come up and that everyone have sinned and, and fallen short. And so we should not ever think that we have some sort of righteousness, some greater righteousness for ourselves. But only what we can do is we can do our best. We can give what we have to give to the Lord and let the Lord count us and identify us as his people. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for our portion of Nassau. We thank you for the teaching for this week. And Father, we uh, pray that as we continue through the Torah portions, you continue to teach us, guide us, allow us to glean the greater mysteries of your wisdom and your knowledge, Father, from the passages of Scripture. Father, I pray that we would just be ministered to. I pray that we would be blessed as we continue through all of this teaching, all of this instruction for the year. And Father, as we go to keep the Feast of Shavuot this weekend, Father, I pray that we would be blessed and encouraged in everything that we do to keep that appointed time in accordance to your law, in accordance with your will. And Father, may we continue to consecrate ourselves, keeping your commandments, continue to be clean and be holy, for you are holy, Father. So we thank you for your appointed times. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction, and the wonderful worship of your name and for the wonderful gift of your son, Yeshua, our Savior. So we thank you, Lord, for all of these things. In Yeshua's name, amen. The blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chayolam natah betocheinu Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha-Torah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, to chapter 13, this week's Haftor portion, 
uh, is going to take up the topic of the Nazarite vow in the Torah portion that Ephraim shared with you. Part of the instruction had to do with uh, performing the Nazarite vow, the special conditions associated with that. And so we are in Judges chapter 13 because we're going to hear about the story of the uh, the prophetic message and the birth of Samson. And Samson was a Nazarite to God from the womb. And that's a very special category. And that's what made Samson such a unique character in biblical history and for us. Uh, so that's the reason why this portion, Judges 13, is connected with our portion of Nassau because of the instruction of that. So without any further introduction on that, let me take you into the story. Uh, I'm sure most of you have heard uh, something about Samson, uh, probably in your past days, probably through uh, stories, um, Sunday school, things like that. Uh, in examining his life, uh, he has a very unique life as compared to many of the others. He is the last judge of the judges of Israel. Uh, which set the stage for the monarchy to follow. You know, the king, King Saul and King David and so forth followed shortly thereafter, after this particular judge. And he was a judge of Israel for some 20 years. Uh, but this is the, uh, the story of his birth and uh, how the Lord called for him to, from the womb, uh, to be a Nazarite uh, from the womb. So follow along with me. I'm going to read to you Judges chapter 13. I'll read it in, in whole. And then we're going to go back and examine some specific things about this story. Now, the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman, said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now, therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. I want you to take note what God's purpose is here for this man to have this be a Nazarite from the womb. The Philistines had come in, and they were invaders. And the difference between the Philistines and other enemies of Israel is that the other enemies would raid, steal, things like that, and then they'd go back to their lands and leave the Israelites alone. But the Philistines would come in and invade the land and occupy it and keep the people in subjections to it. And the Philistines had come into that region and were making the people subject to them. So it was a completely different kind of enemy. And God has purposed now to begin to turn that situation around to defeat the Philistines by starting with one man who's going to be Samson. Let me continue to read further. Verse 6, Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God, very awesome. And I did not ask him where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. 
Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom thou hast sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah rose, followed his wife, and when he had come to the woman, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I have said. She shall not eat anything that comes from the vine, or drink wine, or drink strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a kid for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name so that when your words come to pass we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord said, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? So Manoah took the kid with the grain offering and offered it to, uh, on the rock to the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. And it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward the heaven, that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah and his wife saw it, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah or his wife than Manoah knew he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering with our, from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. And then the woman gave birth to the son, named him Samson, and the child grew up, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him at Mahadadon between Zorah and Esdaol. That, that's essentially our portion uh, for this week that goes with the Nazarite vow. Uh, so first of all, let me clarify a couple of things. Uh, this is a, a different kind of Nazarite uh, thing that has taken place with Samson as opposed to the commandments of a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow that's described to us in the law is something that you would make a choice for. It, you decide you're going to make such a vow and that you're going to commit yourself under this procedure, this ritual of the Nazarite vow. Whereas in the case of Samson, he had no choice in this matter whatsoever. God chose it for him. So that's one of the major distinctions. And as a result, as you know, the conditions changed slightly. There's uh, these incredible conditions for Nazarite vow not to come into contact with the grape, grape skin, grape seed, uh, juice, wine, any product of the grape uh, which are associated with joy and pleasure and to not have any contact with him whatsoever. And in the case of this one, it's his mother who's prohibited from having contact with it because Samson himself, the only restriction upon him is not to cut his hair. 
And if you remember from the Nazarite vow, uh, you didn't cut your hair while you were under the vow, but you did cut it at the completion of the vow and presented it to the Lord. In the case of Samson, he's told not to cut his hair at all, all the way to his death. And as you know, let me go fast forward, you know the story that uh, the only time that he really was captured, the only time that he really had a problem was when Delilah found out about the cutting of the hair, the Nazareth, and, and shorn his head, and then he was very weak and was unable to defend himself. Now, it goes back to, again, why in the world is God doing this? Why in the world do we have this fascinating story about this Superman of sorts uh, in the history of Israel? Well, it's stated here in chapter 13 that the purpose that God had in mind was to begin to deal with the Philistines. And as I mentioned to you before, the Philistines were invaders. They had come into the promised land, begun to occupy the ground, and they were a very... Uh, as compared to some of the ancients, they were very sophisticated people. They're highly organized. Their military was very structured. Their leadership was highly structured. And um, that to deal with and to contend with it, um, they were used to occupying uh, ground of, of wherever they went and making the people subject to them. Some have speculated that the ancient Philistines actually came from the ancient lands of where Greece and Rome would have come from, from Italy and in that part of the Aegean Sea, that they were the ancient peoples from that area who had traveled down uh, to do that. Uh, it's not really so much important to know exactly who they are and where they're at, but this is the beginning of hearing of the conflict of them that will lead all the way to King David. What Samson starts here with the Philistines is going to be ended by King David when he wipes the Philistines out. Um, and so there is a connection between Samson that goes all the way to King David over dealing with this common enemy at the time. Now, from a strategic point of view, God is actually doing something very, very smart here about selecting Samson to deal with the Philistines because had we had had a leader who could have, say, rallied uh, all of Israel and the tribes of Israel to say to do normal battle with the Philistines, there are many who believe that it would have just wiped Israel out from there, that the Philistines would have just wiped them out. But by raising up a single man, by God raising up Samson, and using Samson to taunt and to terrorize, and to befuddle and to ultimately destroy the leadership of the Philistines, which is what happened, um, that uh, this was the tactic that actually preserved Israel. That it wasn't the whole nation that rose up against the Philistines, and the Philistines knew it. It was just this one cantankerous character. And so they were always trying to deal with this one character. They, they were always saying, well, we'll just solve our problem by dealing with him, and instead of attacking all of Israel, and he didn't seem to be supported by Israel. It seemed he was supporting, he was, he was supporting Israel and helping Israel. Um, and this is how uh, God began to do harm to the Philistines, to begin to unsettle their invading area, and to set the stage for when King David would come with the armies of Israel and then defeat the Philistines and uh, so forth from it. Um, the, um, 
One of the other things that this particular story does, though, it brings out a, a couple of other features that we, we need to cover. And that is, it, it's not about Samson, it's about his parents. It's very clear from the dialogue that we hear in this chapter that Samson's mother apparently was the spiritual giant in the family. Whereas the father is like he's not spiritually very smart. He's not very discerning about things going on. It, the, the angel of the Lord presents himself to her, not to him, and he's kind of like tagging along in this process, uh, barely keeping up even with his wife, and even toward the end, he's confused about when he's actually confronted uh, with the, uh, the supernatural presence and power of this, of this uh, angel of the Lord, uh, where he doesn't even know how to interpret this correctly. He didn't even know if God's for him or against him. He, he thinks he's in danger um, in the process. So going back and examining, we also have to ask, who in the world is this angel of the Lord? Because he appears to be a natural man to Manoah, the father, but the mother knows that there's something special about this person. That, that, as a matter of fact, she refers to him as the man of God. She refers to him in a very powerful title, uh, talking about the spiritual connection. And she senses that he has prophetic power and can speak uh, to the things of God. Um, and she's willing to comply uh, with the things from the Lord, whereas uh, the, the father is not so much objecting to complying, but is more confused and wants more detail, wants more answers. Well, you know, after we have this son, then what vocation is he supposed to have? What are we supposed to do with him? How do we train him up? You know, and how do, how do we do this? You know, kind of thing. You would have thought that those would have been natural questions. Like, well, he grows, you know, but, uh, you know, the father is asking those kinds of questions um, in the midst of it. And again, it's part of the dynamic that we see between um, the, the mother of Samson and the father of Samson and this character, this angel of the Lord. There is, uh, and by the way, for Jews and Judaism, this is a very difficult passage for them to deal with. Uh, because um, there's a couple of things that the angel of the Lord is going to uh, say for himself and, and do that are really in the realm of the power of God himself as opposed to just an angel. Uh, and Jews, as a, as a matter of course, struggle with the title, the angel of the Lord. Uh, this title shows up as to, this is the angel that met Joshua when they crossed over into the promised land. Um, the angel of the Lord is, is, comes to us in a couple of different ways. And Judaism wants to just say, oh, it's just an angel. Recognizing full well that big, powerful angels have names and, um, are, and have different expressions uh, about them. Uh, when he, this angel is asked for his name in particular, he gives an answer and he comes, what we translate as, how will you know that my name is wonderful? Uh, let me give you more literally in the Hebrew what it really is saying. Verse 18, but the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name seeing that it is, and this would be the more accurate Hebrew translation, seeing that it is incomprehensible to you, is actually what it's saying. And this goes back to 
the angel of the Lord that wrestled with Jacob. You know, uh, why do you ask that my name is wonderful? It goes back to that same answer as the one who wrestled with Jacob. Now, for those of who have done the study of the angel that wrestled with uh, Jacob, uh, we have concluded as messianics that there's too many powerful indications that this was the Messiah that was doing this with. And it was the Messiah that greeted uh, the people when they crossed the Jordan into the land. And as messianics, we agree this is the Messiah that came to give this declaration. For it. So it brings in messianic tones, you know, into this whole plan about Samson. We believe that Samson, the reason why he was able to accomplish and do the things he was, because the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him, and specifically he would receive the Spirit of might. And that's one of the seven spirits of God, one of the seven spirits the Messiah has. And so the Messiah granted to him the messianic spirit of might upon him so that he had this incredible strength when the spirit of the lord would come upon him he had this incredible strength to accomplish and to do things in a physical form in a physical way um, with that said that we have the messiah potentially involved in this process for us as messianics that puts a very uh, special uh, shall we say pallor over this whole thing. It, it, in other words, it changes the tone of things that we're looking at. And in particular, we take note of um, when uh, the husband comes up and asks him, are you the man that spoke to, and I, I, this, is, this is weird, that spoke to the woman? Um, and he answers in verse 11, I am. Now, any time in Scripture we see the phrase, I am, oh my goodness, you know, takes us right back to the burning bush. You know, when Moses said, whom shall I say has sent me, you know, who you are. And he says, I am that I am. You tell him I am, sent you. Um, and so he's giving that same answer. Uh, I am, uh, you know, to it. And also, are you the man who spoke to the woman now, I would have thought he would have said, are you the man that spoke to my wife? I mean, but instead to the woman, what, what is going on here? What is happening there? Part of it speaks to the dynamic of his unbelief and her belief. The woman who is spiritual, did you speak to her as opposed to she's my wife? The, 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 her spiritual testimony carries much greater weight. I want to remind you of a certain story in Scripture uh, in which Yeshua played this out again, the woman at the well. The woman at the well, is the, she, he spoke to the woman. And that woman then, who suddenly became very spiritual as a result of the interchange with the Messiah, went into uh, to the villages and told, come and hear what this man has said to me. And um, she became a prophetic voice uh, to the villages and to the people to bring them out to hear what Yeshua was going to teach there near the well. And so we have some parallels, messianic parallels here. It's from this story that it causes us to take note of that story at, at Jacob's well with Yeshua and the woman because it ties back into this. 
And we see the parallel that she's the spiritual message of what the angel has said. The woman at the well was the spiritual message of what the Messiah had to say, and, and it, it's connected. It's, uh, we see all these parallels and connections. As messianics, these are things that we don't dismiss. These are parallelisms, and these are hints. The Remez level of the Torah uh, and the Scripture, these are hints of uh, that this message is really about the Messiah. And that's what we as messianics conclude from this birth story. A miracle birth foretold, well, that lines up with the Messiah. Um, these other comments, these other words that are done, again, parallels into the Messiah, uh, tying back. So with that said, and we just have the introduction of Samson here without going into his whole life, let's just for a moment, let's go back into the Torah portion where it gave the instruction about the Nazarite vow. One of the great questions for a lot of messianics is we hear the instructions about the Nazarite vows, and we go, okay, uh, well, I'm glad we don't do that yet because uh, we don't have the temple system. We can't complete the Nazarite vows. So what in the world would we use that for? I mean, why, why did God give these instructions and so forth? Well, the story of Samson tells us a little something about what Nazarite vows are really about. In that God purposed for the purpose of delivering the people, uh, Nazarite vows has to do with spiritual changes that are going to take place in the person who takes on the vow. It may be deliverance for certain things for him. Let's say that a person has this particular habit, and it's not a, del a good one, and he needs a breakthrough in, in this. Then this is when a Nazarite vow would come into play. This is where he would make a vow to God to abstain from a certain activity or to do a particular activity, to complete a certain activity. And it's, again, like uh, was given here for Samson, so that we might deliver Israel from the Philistines, deliver you from the enemy or from a certain thing that is harmful to you, that's not helping you. It's a stage to start the work of deliverance. And this is the probably the most powerful connection that we have, probably one of the best examples that we have of why in the world did we even have Nazarite vows? Why do we even have this? Because uh, we hear about people doing Nazarite vows. For example, in Acts chapter 21, when Paul came back, there was a group of men who were under Nazarite vows. Paul paid their fees, took them in, and so forth. But it doesn't elaborate, well, why did these guys take Nazarite vows? I mean, you know, how does that apply to our faith and walk today and, and so forth? We usually avoid the whole question by saying, well, we can't complete it because we don't have the temple and so forth. But the more fundamental question is, why would you have a Nazarite vow? Why would you put yourself in that position to have one? And it appears that this is the only evidence that really substantiates it apparently has something to do with you getting a spiritual breakthrough in your life to either break something, a habit, or something that's going on in your life to be delivered from it, and or to do something that you need to accomplish for your spiritual benefit, and you need some help or concentration or focus to accomplish it. And so it appears that is the rationale. And in the case of God, he did it for all of Israel, 
by a Nazarite from birth, a Nazarite from the womb, for the purpose of helping to deliver Israel from the power of the Philistines, to be part of the deliverance. So as we go into the rest of the story about Samson, that's what we hear about. We hear about these unique ways that God used a single man to disturb uh, the heck out of the Philistines and begin to taunt them and take them to task, obviously with the conclusion of him bringing their temple down at a great festival. They had to mock him that he pulled the temple down. And as the commentaries will tell you, that Samson in his death killed more Philistines than he did during when he was alive. That his, he was purposed in his life to bring about the demise of the Philistines, to bring about harm to them, and God purposed him through the spirit of the strength of might and through this Nazarite vow for that purpose. Uh, obviously, reading on about Samson is a wonderful story, uh, very fascinating to review that again. But here in this portion, we hear about his call and um, how his mother uh, was, um, the stage was set for his birth for it to be it. All right, so that is our Haftoah portion uh, for this week that goes with Naso. Uh, we pray God's blessings on all of you. And thank you again, once again, for all of the many prayers and support that have come my way into my household for the benefit of my wife. I appreciate it very much. And we continue to look to the Lord, amen, uh, for all of our needs. So if we would, let me clo- conclude in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the Torah. Thank you for the Hof Torah teachings. Thank you for the incredible story of the story of Samson. And uh, the man who had the spirit of might. And there's some days, Lord, I wish I had a little of that spirit of might to overcome certain situations. But we know you are our champion. And you have that spirit. You're able to overcome much. And we look to you, Lord, for to be the, the supplier of our needs. And you have promised us that you will meet our needs. So we look to you and trust you for all of that. Thank you for my brethren. Thank you, Lord, for being a part of this broadcast and learning and seeking you out. And I ask, Lord, that you would manifest yourself unto my brethren and strengthen them, uh, even as you manifested yourself to the parents of Samson. Uh, Show yourself in our daily walks and encourage us along the way. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. 
May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat shalom. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around singing Shabbat shalom. Everybody sing shalom. Shalom.